0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Terry Tucker about his book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Terry Tucker, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you, John. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to meet with you. We're going to have a really fun conversation. We're going to explore a lot of different topics related to leadership today, uh, but specifically, I wanted to frame this around your recent book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. I love the title, and I think there's just uh, a lot we can pull from that. Uh, So that's going to be kind of the framing and scope of our conversation today. As we get started, I wanted to share Terry's bio with everybody. Terry Tucker has been an NCAA Division I college basketball player, uh, Citadel cadet, a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, an undercover narcotics investigator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, a high school basketball coach, a business owner, a motivational speaker, an author, and most recently, a cancer survivor. He is the author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Live Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. He and his wife have lived all over the United States and currently reside in Colorado with their daughter and Wheaton Terrier, Maggie. In 2019, Terry started the website Motivational Check to help others find and lead their uncommon and extraordinary lives. I love it. Wonderful background. Uh, I love, uh, I live in Utah. Colorado is also beautiful. We we share a lot of the same uh, natural features. uh, So that's wonderful. I'm also a dog person, so I can relate there as well. Um, Anything else you want to share with listeners by way of your background before we really dive on in?
1: No, it's funny. I listen to you sort of recite my resume and I figure, you know, one of these days I'm going to have to figure out what, I, what I'm what i going to do when I grow up. You know, I've had so many different backgrounds and, and, and different jobs and things like that, that a lot of it maybe we'll get into, maybe we won't. A lot of it was really kind of things that my dad wanted me to do as opposed to things that I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I kind of had a choice out of college. He was sick. He was dying of cancer. I had a choice whether to go into business. I obviously chose that if you look at my first two jobs, but my passion had always been law enforcement. My grandfather was a Chicago police officer from nineteen twenty four to nineteen fifty four so was in Chicago during prohibition during you know the gang shooting it up and everything so um, we can get into that maybe if it if it comes up if not let's let's
0: just dive in. yeah well actually that I mean that really is kind of the first question I have. Uh, I think we all live meandering lives most of us don't have a a strictly linear path in terms of life in terms of career Uh, and a lot of us end up doing a lot of different things and so I don't think that's uh, strange but you do have an interesting collection of different types of things uh, which is interesting and uh, and really I guess it comes down to determining you know what is most important to us what's our purpose right and I also think it's not at all uncommon for for young people to largely choose early career options and schooling based on their parents, based on societal expectations and those sorts of things. I think that happens all the time and it, I think it's one of the reasons why we end up having a lot of people with midlife crises because they, you know, they, they spend 10-20 years in a career they hate uh, because they were trying to uh, please somebody and, and then they realize they actually hate it and they want to do something different. So uh, kudos to you for figuring that out and, and pivoting. Um, and anything else you want to say about that in terms of kind of discovering your own purpose and really what resonated most with you?
1: No, I, I think that that is important, you know, to, to follow your path, your, your purpose, your career, your why, whatever it ends up being for you. And again, I, I, maybe I should back up, but, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk a lot about purpose. And we sort of acquaint that to our job. It doesn't have to be your job. You know, I mean, in a lot of cases it is, but you know, you could have a job over here to pay the bills, but your purpose is to write or to paint or to volunteer or whatever that ends up being, whatever you feel in your heart. And and I always tell, especially you mentioned young people, if there's there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you should do, but it scares you, I'm going to tell you to do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did, they're going to be the things you didn't do, and by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, wonderful. Um, so all these different careers, uh, ultimately, you, you, you've settled in to, you know, do some really cool stuff around motivation and leadership and your book, of course. Um one of the aspects, though, that you've had to deal with is your nine-year battle with cancer. And this is happening amidst you know all the other things in your life, of course. Can you tell us a little bit about what things were like during that time and perhaps some of the, the life lessons you learned uh, as you're going through that horrific battle?
1: Yeah, there's, a, there's an old quote by Winston Churchill, the former prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, who said, you know, if you're going through hell, keep going, I kind of feel like my nine-year battle with cancer has sort of been this battle with, you know, going through hell. I I was a high school girls basketball coach in Texas when I had a callus break open on the bottom of my foot back in 2012. And being a coach, you're on your feet a lot, so I didn't think a lot of it. But after a couple weeks when it didn't heal, I went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that would give anybody concern. But he sent it off to pathology. And then two weeks later, I get a call from him. And as I said, he was a friend. So the more difficulty he was having explaining what was going on, obviously more frightened I became until he just kind of laid it out. He said, Terry, have been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of your feet or the palms of your hands. And I recommend you go to MD Anderson, which is probably, if not the best cancer hospital, certainly one of the best in the world and be treated there because of of, of the uniqueness of your cancer. So I did. And I had the bottom of my foot cut out. I had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed. And when I healed, I was put on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon. And what interferon did was give me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. I I know you're shaking your head. And I I did too with my oncologist. You know, I'm like, what? No, that's just not. Yeah, Yeah. it's cruel. Yeah. Nobody should have to do that. She's like, do the best you can. And so Eventually, that was 2017, when I had to stop the drug, it became so toxic that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees. Uh, That was 2017, the disease came back when the drug was stopped. 2018, had my left foot amputated. 2019, it just creeped up my leg into my shin, had two more surgeries. And then in 2020, had an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle that grew large enough that it, uh, it shattered my tibia, my shin bone my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated. And I also found out that I had tumors in my lungs and I'm being treated for those right now. So on that uplifting story, what's your next question?
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm so sorry. And so your ongoing battle um, continues. What, what are some of the things that you've learned through, through through this time? I mean, I I can only um, imagine Um, it just sounds so horrible uh, yet you're sitting here, you know, having a you're super positive and smiling and, and you're 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 speaking out with groups about how to find meaning and purpose in life and living your best life. You know, how did you get there from from all these trials?
1: Yeah, it it's we're all going to experience pain in our lives. And it doesn't have to be, you know, cancer pain, terminal illness, you know, chronic, whatever. It doesn't have to be an illness related. You could be as simple as, you know, you flunk a test at school, you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or you don't get the promotion at work that you think you deserve. Pain is inevitable. Suffering on the other hand, that's optional. That's what you do with that pain. Do you take it and use it to make you stronger, to make you tougher or to, and, and to make you more determined? Or do you wallow in it and, you know, and want people to feel sorry for you and feel sorry for yourself? I, I guess I should should sort of preface this with, I'm a human being. There's no S on my chest. I don't wear a cape or anything like that. I have bad days. You know, there are days that I cry. There are days that I get down. There are days that I feel sorry for myself. I just don't let myself stay there. And, you know, one thing I learned during all those weeks of interferon and always having the flu, and believe me, there were days I prayed to die. I literally prayed to God, just please take me right now. I'm so sick of being sick. And I just realized we have to win the day. And, and sometimes winning the day is winning just this five minutes. I just got to get out of bed and I got to get the, to the sofa. Or you know what? I'm feeling a little bit of energy today. Maybe I can help my wife by putting a load of laundry in the washing machine or something like that. You know, we, we, we tend to look at things sort of, you know, in the big picture. But what if you broke that down? What if you need to improve in something? You know, instead of saying, okay, I've got to get better at this. What if you said this? I'm going to get one percent better at that every single day. At the end of 30 days, you're thirty percent better than when you started and and that problem, that issue, isn't so large anymore because you're only you're breaking it down for lack of a better word, you know to bite-sized chunks, something that you can you can handle easily. So that, that was one thing I learned. I, the other thing I learned is that the obstacles that we face in life, so many times are the obstacles that we put in front of ourselves. There was a professor back at Johns Hopkins in the 1950s who did an experiment with rats. And what he did is he took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long they could tread water. And most of the rats treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as they were getting ready to go under and drown, he grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, let them rest for a while. And then he put them back in that same tank of water. And the second time around the majority of the rats treaded water for 60 hours. Think about that. First time, 15 minutes, second time, 60, 60, hours. What that said to me was two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. And number two, what our physical bodies are capable of doing. You know, we, the, all these limits that we put that are out there, we put on ourselves, your body can do so much more The the Navy SEALs, probably the toughest group of, of warriors, or, or certainly men in the world, they have a forty percent rule, and, and it's similar to that test. It basically says if you can't run another step, or do another push-up, or, or swim another lap, you're at forty percent of your maximum, and you have sixty percent left to give to yourself. So when whenever you think you know I can't do that, or that's too hard, or whatever, remember you have so much more to give to yourself. Don't sell yourself sell yourself short get out there and make that happen.
0: Yeah. Well, I I love that. And a couple of, of personal thoughts uh, and experiences came to mind though. I don't want to try to equate these with like battling cancer um, because they're, they're silly in comparison, but um, I think of, you know, as you're describing just incremental progress Um, I I used to road bike a lot um, and I don't so much anymore. It took a lot of time and I have other priorities, but, You know, I'd go on these, these long bike rides, 200 plus mile bike rides. You get to the point where you're just so worn down. I've never run a marathon, but I imagine it's similar, you know, to the feeling of running a marathon. You get to the point where you're just so worn down and your body's screaming at you and you just think, "I, I have no choice. I just have to stop. And when you get to that point, all you can do is like go to the next hill, right? Or you you, you choose a landmark and you say, I, I can get there. I'm not sure I can go any farther, but I'm just going to get there. And you get there and then you're like, okay, I can get to this next spot. And at least for me, that's how I did it, right? To, to persevere and push through. Um, so that's that's one thing I'm thinking of. And I think we all have those types of things in our lives that we either choose to, to uh, kind of give up on or we choose to just persevere. Um, and again, road biking, that's a silly thing. It's, it's nowhere comparable to, to terminal disease or, or other hardships that people have to deal with in all, their life all the time. And I want to acknowledge that. Uh, another one that's even more silly is I've always, my whole life, I've wanted to play the drums. And just a couple weeks ago, I decided, you know what, it was just kind of on a whim. I saw this uh, ad for an electric drum set. I'm like, I'm going to get a, a, an electric drum set. Um, and so you know, I, I, I get it. I set it up and I like start playing. I have, I have like no rhythm. I have no drumming talent. Like I I am somewhat musical, but I've never drummed. I just always wanted to. And so I I sit down, I start doing it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm horrible. And this is hard. (laughs) I'm like, now what, now what I have this drum set. Now what do I do? Because I I'm just, I'm a fool. Like I'm a complete idiot on the drums. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch some YouTube videos. I'm going to just like master a couple simple, um, beats and, you know, those sorts of things. And it's, it's been, you know, two, three weeks and I kind of adopted the same mentality that you said, you know, 1% better. If, if I can just like master one thing in my daily practice and get just a little bit better at it, then you know, over time that starts to accumulate. And now just a couple weeks in, like I can actually play along the songs. I'm like still not good, but I, I can actually do simple things and I can play along the songs and, and it's actually already feeling really satisfying, you know, and I know over time I'll get more, I'll get better and better and better. And so, you know, if we, if we can just, like you said, when things, particularly when things are really hard, um, if we can just pull them apart into their little pieces, And do just a little bit at a time, especially when we feel overwhelmed by the task at hand, um, then that's going to be our best bet in in moving forward. And we're talking about personal life types of things right now, but it it certainly applies in the workplace as well. um, Because how often do we find ourselves in a new role, in a new position, and we feel completely in over our heads, we're overwhelmed. Most jobs have a pretty steep learning curve when you're new at them. And it can be very easy to feel discouraged. It can feel very easy to feel stupid, to feel imposter syndrome, all of those sorts of things that ultimately can influence us, you know, have negative self-talk and ultimately can can bog us down, especially if we ruminate in all the the difficulties that we're facing. And, you know, most employers don't expect you to come in to a new job, a new role, and to be able to just like hit the ground running ready to fire on all cylinders from day one. Like they recognize, yes, there's going to be training. Yes. There's going to be a learning curve. Yes. They, they just want to know that you're, you're putting in the effort and that you're making steady progress. Uh, but that can be really hard for, for the person when they're in that moment, just feeling so incompetent <laughs> in this yeah. new role, in this new position. And so, so we just have to take baby steps and, and make, um, incremental progress. And as we do that, you know, you get a month into a new job, uh, uh, six months into a new job, you're a, a, an, an entirely different person in that role, because you've now learned and grown and developed and and you're you have way more capabilities than what you previously did.
1: Yeah, I, I, I listen to your talk. Right? I of a story when I was at Wendy's. So I started out in field marketing, I was a trainee and I Basically, man, I did copying and gassed up everybody's car. I, I mean, that was kind of what I did, you know, with my college degree. And, and, and eventually, I moved to new product marketing. And I remember there was a product we were looking at. It, w- it was a it was a beef nugget. It, it was very similar to a chicken nugget.
0: and explore those ordinary everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations.
1: It, it looked horrible, and the focus group research on it was, tastes great, looks terrible. But there was one of the directors was like, you know what, I really think we should put this in a market, a group of stores somewhere, say Indianapolis, whatever, and test it, because I, I really have a good feeling about it. And all the data, all the research said no. And you, you got to understand when we did that, that was hundreds of thousands of dollars because it's it's putting equipment in, it's getting suppliers, it's training, it's putting stuff on menu boards, it's keying stuff on the register, it, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars And this guy just kept pushing. We should try it. We should try it. We should try it. And and so the vice president finally relented. Said, fine, we'll try it. We'll put it in Indianapolis. And it failed miserably. Great taste. Looked terrible. And we were all, you know, we get into debriefing meeting at the end. And we're, we're, you know, the rest of us are kind of like, man, this guy's going to have his hat handed to him, you know, because he did this. And the VP came in and he said, you know what? You know, John over here suggested this and we know it failed. He said, but you know what? I want all of you to have the attitude of John. If you believe in something, I want you to stand up and say, you know what? I believe in this. I know all the research says we shouldn't do it, but I want you to, to if, if your heart tells you to do it, I want you to be confident enough and, and feel good enough about this group that will support you in it. We may not do it, but I want you to be able to do that. And we were all, I, you know, I was a kid at the time and you know, I just graduated from college and I was like, wow, that's the first time I ever seen somebody take what was in their heart and say, you know what, I want to go with it. And also have somebody say, hey, yeah, you totally screwed this up. But you know what, I, I admire you for having the gumption to, to bring this forward and say, I believe in it. And I want to give it a try. And and that was those were two lessons that I learned right there at that meeting that have, have stayed with me for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's super interesting. and And that is the mark of a Confident, secure leader uh, that they're willing to create an atmosphere where people can uh, try things that ultimately will fail. Think of if if the, that leader had taken it a different direction, um, the direction everyone thought. <laughs> uh, what what would that have meant for the next time you're trying to innovate or do something? You know that challenges the status quo. People are going to be protective, right? They're gonna they're gonna um, be self protective. They're going to not try to disrupt the status quo because they they see this other person that you know was made an example of for trying something that didn't work. And that's you know that that's going to be the end of innovation in that team. So so kudos to to that leader. And that's, you know, what we should all aspire to. Does that mean we try to purposely fail? No. Should we uh, make evidence-based decisions as best we can? Yes. But, you know, some, there, there's more types of evidence than just, you know, what a focus group said. So, you know, good for them uh, for for pursuing that. And that it's a, also a really great lesson. Um, so Terry, I'm, I'm, thinking you know we've already started to, to tackle some of these principles that i imagine you're discussing in your book but can you walk us through uh, you know you, you subtitle the book 10 principles right of living this extraordinary life what maybe not all of them we probably don't have time to go through all of them but you know what are some of those most important principles that you w- want to share with listeners today about what we can do in our personal lives in our organizational and career life you know, in, in trying to to lead that extraordinary life, lead extraordinary teams and help our organizations to thrive?
1: Yeah, and, and the answer to that question is it's gonna depend on you. And, and, and I, I love as an author, each chapter is a principle. And when somebody reads the book, there's always one principle that sort of jumps out. And you know, This is the one that resonates with me. And, and I love that, you know, and, and the principles are not in any order, you know, two is not any more important than seven or anything like that. But the, one of the ones that resonates with me, and it resonates with me because I've done it uh, probably a lot over my life, is this one. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. How many times have you wanted to do something and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I don't know. You know. If I do that and I fail, what is that person going to think about me or what are these people going to say about me? Kind of goes back to what we were talking about with with the, the beef nugget and, and that whole situation where somebody actually stood up and said, you know what? Yeah, I'm kind of scared. Yeah. The data says we probably shouldn't do it, but I'm going to go, I'm going to push this forward. I'm going to see what we can do with this. So, so that's, that's the one that resonates with me there. They're actually, I devoted a whole chapter to failure and, and, and failing often, especially when you're young. I mean, our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So to the brain, the status quo is good. Don't mess with it. It's good here. You know, just stay where we are. But the only way you're going to get better, the only way you're going to grow is to step outside those comfort zones. And when you do that, all kinds of things come into play. Fear, you know, anxiety, you know, stress, you know, hey, I may be embarrassed, you know, if, if I do this and things like that. But you got to take that chance, you, you, especially when you're young. I mean, like you said before, when you go into a job and, you know, I was a trainee, I, I, I could pretty much do no wrong because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I mean, I here I am with this business administration degree and I think I know everything about business. I didn't know a thing about business. You know, I had to learn by sitting back and shutting up and watching and seeing how people, you know, that was that was successful. That wasn't why, you know, and, and kind of being intellectual about that. So that's that's another one about failure. The importance of listening. uh and w- one of the jobs that I had was a hostage negotiator on a, on a SWAT team. And, you know, as a policeman, most of what we dealt with was people face-to-face, almost 99% of the time. And you could take visual clues. You know, if you're talking to somebody and they're kind of looking around, maybe they're going to run, you know, and, or if they're balling up their fists, maybe they want to fight you. And, you know, you can do things. You can mitigate that. You can sit them down. You can handcuff them. You can put them in a the car. Whatever is appropriate for why you're there. But as negotiators, we didn't have those visual clues. That person wasn't with us. So we had to figure out what was going on based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it. And the importance of listening, not to respond, but to understand. And, and I, I think we miss that boat a lot. You know, it's like, you know, hurry up, John, say what you're gonna say because I wanna get my two cents in. No, wait a minute. John, what did you say? Okay. Let me understand why you said that. Where are you coming from in life? And today, we, you know, whether it's on the job or whether it's in your personal life, we're screaming at each other, you know. And you're always right. Well, guess what? You're not. You're not always right. You you have to be open to what other people want to do. So, so that's listening was another one. Another one that I really like is um, you are the person you're looking to become. So even if you're not that person right now, you still are that person. You you just haven't gotten there yet. So don't stop, you know, if if that's something you want to do, even though you're not there yet, don't just sit back and and John, you and I probably know people. It's like, eh, nah, I'm good. Not going to push myself, not going to get out there, not going to put myself out. Kind of scary. I like the way I am. Don't do that. Whoever you want to be, be that person, act like that person, and eventually you'll get to that point.
0: I love that. I, I think those are really great points in it. It does, uh, you did a good job of of, uh, highlighting some of the key principles that you address in your book. Uh, Of course, many, many more that we don't have time to get into today. Um, But Terry, it has just been a real pleasure talking with you. Uh, The time has flown by. Uh, I need to let you get on with your busy day. But before we close, I wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your work, find out more about your book, and then give us a final word on the topic for today.
1: Sure. So I uh, I can be gotten to through my website, Motivational Check. So, motivationalcheck.com. I put up a, a daily thought for the day. I put up the Monday morning motivational message on, on Mondays. Um, you can get sustainable excellence anywhere. You can get a book online. You can get it through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple iBooks, wherever you can get a book online. And and, and I'll end with this story. I, I, I was a, I always been a big fan of Westerns growing up. And my mom and dad used to let me stay up and watch Gunsmoke and Wild Wild West and things like that. 1993, the movie Tombstone comes out and it stars Val Kilmer as the guy by the name of Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as the man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings that walked on the face of the earth. They are not made up characters for this movie. And Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much he was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt was a lawman. So these two guys from entirely divergent backgrounds Form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc is dying at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which literally is about three hours from my house. The real Doc Holiday died there and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And they're talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, I was in love with my cousin when I was young. She's all that I ever wanted, but she joined a convent over the affair. And he looks at Wyatt and says, What about you, Wyatt? What do you want? Wyatt says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal, there's just life. And get on with living yours. John, you and I know people who are kind of sitting back and saying, you know, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. When that happens, I'll have a successful life. When this happens, I'll have an influential life. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there, find the purpose that you were put on this earth for, live that purpose, because I promise you, at the end of your life, you'll have a whole lot less stress and you'll be a whole lot happier. And I'll end it at that
0: love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Terry. It's been a pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Terry and his team can do for you. Check out his book. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week.